Well, the passage that we're going to look at today is the parable of the prodigal son. And if you were like me, throughout your life, you have heard that um, the name of this, this parable points our attention to the younger son. And so prodigal then means wayward in our minds for most of us. But if you actually look up prodigal in Webster's, how many of you actually have a dictionary still at home? <laughs> I don't think I do. <laughs> Webster'sDictionary.com. The definition of pro prodigal is actually profuse or wasteful expenditure, to spend until you have nothing left. And so really, prodigal refers as much to the father in this story as it does to the younger son. And as we listen to the story this morning, I think we will find that the story is really not so much about the younger son. It's not so much about the older son. This is a story about a prodigal father, a lavish, wasteful father who gives it all away until he has nothing left. If I were you, I would just scratch the title out in your Bible and write the prodigal father. That's what we're looking at this morning. Now, the story is in Luke chapter 15, and it's the third in a sequence of three stories that all are hammering home a similar message. We have the parable of the lost sheep. We have the parable of the lost coin. We have the parable of the prodigal father. And so really, I should read all of chapter 15 this morning so that we really get the message that Jesus was making, that Luke is making and presenting all of these stories in sequence. The purpose here is to reveal to us the heart of God. A, a heart that is broken in two by lostness. And that sings with joy as wide as the heavens when those lost things are found. This is the story that we're going to look at this morning. I'm going to read it. It's a fairly long chunk. Um, so just sit back and listen, and then we'll walk through it a bit together. I'm going to read a couple of verses ahead of this, so don't be confused, Drew, if I don't match up with what you're projecting. I'll get there. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he just divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. 
was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. But meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. Well, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Lord, give us eyes to see what you have for us this morning. This parable really contains the heart of the gospel. So Lord, we ask that you would soften our hearts to hear the truth of who you are this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I read the couple of verses at the very beginning of chapter 15 here because it's important that we recognize who Jesus is speaking to as he begins to tell this parable of the prodigal son, parable of the prodigal father. There are two different kinds of people that we see um, standing in this crowd around Jesus. We have tax collectors and sinners on one hand, and then we have Pharisees and the teachers of the law on the other. Now this first group, the sinners, they are clearly attracted to Jesus. They're crowding around him. They're eager to hear what he has to say. And Jesus clearly welcomes them. But then in contrast, we have this other group, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and they are kind of standing at a distance. They are not engaging with Jesus. They are not really a part of what's going on. They are standing back and they are critiquing critiquing Jesus' interactions with these sinners. And they are furious at what they see happening. And so it is in response to this dynamic that Jesus sees playing out right there in front of them that he tells this story. The younger son is the tax collectors and the sinners. The older son is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or people like them. And it is clear by the end of the story that from Jesus' point of view, the religious leaders are just as lost as the sinners that they scorn. These ones are just as in need of conversion as this group over here. Well, let's walk through the passage. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of this estate. 
Now, we maybe don't recognize how appalling this request would have been in that time. The ancient Middle East was a fiercely patriarchal society where the father was the leader of the household, and respect and deference for the father was just expected. It was demanded. And so for a son, especially the youngest son, to come to the father and say, divide your estate before you die and give to me what is mine. This, the father would have been expected to beat the son and run him out of town, disown him, kick him out of the family. Because in essence, what the son is saying is, I want your things, but I don't want you. I wish you were dead. That's what the father would have been expected to do. But that's the opposite of what the father does, isn't it? And this is where we get the first glimpse of the prodigal nature of the father. Rather than doing what was expected, rather than doing what he should have done, the father diminishes his standing in his community. His wealth would have been tied up in his property. And so in order to grant his son's wish, he actually would have had to sell off his property, which was what gave him standing in his community, sell it, and then divide that between his sons. Literally dividing his life in half, heaping shame upon himself, all for the sake of his son. So the son takes the money, he goes off, he squanders everything that his father has given him in wild living, and he eventually finds himself tending pigs. Now, we are city dwellers. We had a pig living in our old backyard, actually, before we moved in, but I would guess that most of us do not have pigs day-to-day in our lives. Maybe you have one of those flip books with your kids, and a pig is like that cute little pink piglet. Pigs in this era were unclean. For a Jewish boy to be tending pigs, he has hit the bottom, the lowest of the low. Even thinking about eating the food of the pigs. Mark and I got to go and spend a weekend, a couple weekends ago at Orcas Island. We weren't here that Sunday because we were hanging out with pigs and goats and chickens and a pony and we were encouraged by the farmer there to feed our food scraps to the pig. And I'll tell you, the food scraps that we were feeding to that pig were not very tasty. Watermelon rinds, coffee grounds, leftover lasagna, melted popsicles, all mixed together and fed to the pigs. So just imagine that this is the situation that this younger son has found him in. He has hit rock bottom. He is not even able to eat the feed from the pigs. But then it says that one day he comes to his senses. He comes to his senses and he actually recognizes the state that he finds himself in. And he realizes that back home, even the servants of his father have it better than he has. The folks that he had never even given a thought to because they were too beneath him actually have food to spare. And here he is maybe without a roof over his head, nothing to eat. And so he decides, I'm just going to go back to my dad, going to eat some humble pie, and I'm just going to see if maybe he'll hire me on as one of those servants. At least I will have enough to eat then. Now, there is no indication in the text here that the son is remorseful for what he has done. There is no indication that there's any sort of 
true repentance or that his going back is out of a desire to confess and really change his ways. That's not anywhere present in the passage. He is desperate. He's starving. And so as he goes back, he's, he's rehearsing what he is going to say to his father in the hopes that he can just get a meal in his belly. Well, what is the father going to do the second time round? He acted rashly the first time, but some amount of time has gone past. Maybe he has, he has rethought his behavior and he's going to act differently. Surely he will make a wiser choice the second time round. Surely he will use his power to put the son in his place. But it says that while the younger son was still a long way off, his father sees him off in the distance. This indicates that the father is waiting for him, has been watching, scanning the horizon for who knows how long, waiting to see a glimpse of something he thinks he will never see coming over the horizon. And he finally sees it. And it says that he is filled with anger. No. Compassion. Compassion. Even after the son has told him, you were dead to me. He feels compassion in his heart. And it says he runs to his son. He throws his arms around him. He kisses him. You guys, this is the second window that we have into the prodigal nature of the father. First, he gave him what he demands. Here, he accepts him home. There's not even an exchange of words at this point. The son has not had a chance to give his excuses, to give his little spiel. The father sees him, and just the fact that he has come back is all that he needs to know. This breaks all Middle Eastern protocol, you guys. No father would greet a rebellious son this way. No elder statesman would even begin to run, let alone, let alone hoisting his skirts up, bearing his legs, and running through the dirt. This is undecorous. This is undignified. This would not have happened. But clearly, the father is not concerned with decorum. Clearly, he is not concerned with appearances. The picture here is of the father literally draping himself on his son's neck. He could not be more pleased or more thrilled to see his son return. Well, after the son untangles himself from his father's embrace, he decides to go on with the plan, and he launches into his prepared speech, gearing up to beg for a position as a hired hand. The son would be satisfied with that much, to be a slave. But the father goes so far beyond that. He restores him to full sonship. He says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. This would have been the father's robe. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. And so they began to celebrate. Now, many meals in those days would have not included meat at all. 
If they did, it would have been a goat or something much smaller. But the fattened calf, this was saved for special occasions. This was a rare day that you would kill the fattened calf. This is the best meal. And this is a lot of meat. So the father is preparing for a public celebration. This is a picture of joy, of prodigal, lavish, reckless grace. The father welcoming the son back as a son is reckless. He doesn't count his sins against him, but he restores him completely. This is 2 Corinthians 5.19, where it says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not reckoning to them their trespasses. Jesus' original audience would have been shocked at the way this story is playing out. They would have been shocked, not so much at the younger son's behavior. Things like that happen. But at the father's behavior, why on earth would any man act this way with such disregard for his own rights, his own standing, his own honor? This is the point that Jesus is making in this passage. Just as the prodigal father forgave the younger son's sins with an embrace, with a robe, with a feast, God's love and forgiveness can pardon and restore any and every kind of sin. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. There is no evil the father's love cannot pardon. There is no sin that is a match for God's grace. And here's the best part. It is all free. Remember, all of this comes before the son even apologizes. But this isn't the end of the story. We have another scene. God's grace is free but the next act will show us that it is also costly. So at this point, the focus of the story shifts to the older son, who, for however long, has been diligently out working in the fields. That is where he is now when he hears the commotion of this party, and he comes to see what is going on. He asks a servant. The servant tells him, there's a party. Your brother's back. Yay! And the older son is outraged. Outraged. He has been faithfully, dutifully working on behalf of his father out in the fields for all of these years. He refuses to join the party. And instead, he stands outside and he fumes until the father comes out of the party to implore him to understand. But when the father comes out, the son answers his father, look, all these years I've been slaving, never disobeying your orders, yet you never gave me anything. But when the son of yours comes, you kill the fattened goat for him, fattened calf for him. Well, now it is the older son's turn to disgrace the father, to publicly doubt him, calling into question the father's actions. There is no joy that his brother has come home because he is too consumed 
with the justice and the inequity of the situation. Now again, in this patriarchal society, it would have been completely expected for the father to do the same thing he should have done with the first son. Exercise his power by disowning the son for questioning him in public. This is flagrant disrespect happening here. But instead, the father goes out to his son. He leaves the party that he is paying for to go out to his son, to put himself in public, in front of the entire village, and he allows himself to submit to being berated by his child. And then he responds not out of a place of power, which he would have been fully justified in doing, but he responds with kindness. The word that's used here as he addresses the son, this is a word of, of tenderness. My child, he says, trying to get him to understand, to join the party. And yet again, in acting this way, the father opens himself up to being perceived as weak and unstable. But we begin to see a pattern here that throughout the story, maintaining the relationship with his sons is much more important to the father than maintaining his reputation, his pride. The older son refers to him as a slave driver in his comments to the father, but this is not a slave driver. This is a father that is full of compassion, that is full of mercy for his children. The father here is generous to the extent that if his community doesn't yet think him crazy, they certainly think that he is crazy now. This level of forgiveness, of grace, is just not heard of. And this is exactly the point of this parable. To display in HDR, Dolby Vision, surround sound, the extravagance of God's grace and his love. This is the heart of the gospel right here. And this is not the only time that we get this sort of extravagant picture of God's love and grace. We saw it in the two stories just prior to this. The shepherd leaving his entire flock to go searching for the one. Turning a whole house upside down looking for that lost coin. We have a vivid picture of his grace and mercy and love in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Paying for the injured man's care out of his own money. A complete stranger. And we've all experienced generosity like this, haven't we? They're the moments that bring tears to our eyes when they happen. Radical, unexpected moments of grace. A dear friend of mine has been traveling up into the mountains recently to preach at a church that was originally planted out of a, another church's AA group. Um, and to this day, the church consists mostly of recovering and not-so-recovering addicts and marginally unhoused individuals. And she happened to meet the current pastor of that original planting church recently and, and was talking to him about the fact that she was doing this. And he was incredulous that she would invest her time in preaching to a bunch of drug-addicted outcasts who clearly were not elect, in his words. 
Why do people do such illogical, risky, crazy things? Well, as this parable shows, God does not see them as drug-addicted outcasts. People do crazy, amazing, grace-filled things because they are reflecting their creator, a God who loves the least of these, who gives it all away. Jesus' storybook Bible, which most of our families here have, refers to God's love as a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. God has not and will not ever give up on his children, any of them. He has hope to the last moment that we will turn to him. Now, you may have noticed that this story doesn't really have an ending. It kind of just ends. The father goes out to the older son, pleads with him to understand, to come back into the party, and then that's it. What does the older son do? What does he decide? We don't know. Will he be able to let go of his need to be validated for the labor that he's put in to earn his part in his father's estate? Can he let go of his need for fairness and equity and justice enough to celebrate the good fortune of his brother who was lost but now is found? Can his pride survive the humbling truth that he and his brother are both in the same boat? desperately lost, but for the amazing grace of their prodigal father. What's he going to do? Well, this is the question that would have been hanging in the minds of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law as they listened to Jesus. This is the question that he is asking them. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond to the prodigal, lavish love of God? that doesn't follow any of our rules. What about us? This story of the prodigal father is a portrait of our Heavenly Father, the God who has sacrificed it all for us. He's made a fool of himself. He has given away the farm out of love for us. How will we respond? This is the question that we are left with this morning. Did you put the Rembrandt painting in here? Oh, can we dim the lights? Is that possible? Um, Rembrandt painted a picture of the father and the youngest son. And so I was just going to invite you to spend a moment with that question. How are you going to respond to the lavishness of God's grace that is being offered to you and to meditate on the painting, but maybe forget about the painting. (laughs) Let's take a moment in quiet to sit with this image as we prepare to come to the table.